begins in Matthew chapter 19. It says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So this young man, as we know, is going to be called the rich young ruler. He is intrigued with Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher. And he's very curious about this idea of the age to come. How can I be a part of that? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would, listen, enter life, the regeneration is what Jesus is essentially saying, Keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young men said to him, all of these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect or rather mature, Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, or a better translation would be grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say, tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with this man, this is impo- with man, excuse me, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have followed me, will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Something bigger. Intrinsically innate, deep inside every single person here, there is a longing to live for something bigger outside of yourself. In the microcosm of this idea, if we could just kind of break it down, it might look like my conversation I had with some friends on Friday night. We're having dinner there at General Duffy's, and Andrew and I are discussing back and forth about what we, the Trailblazers, are going to do this off-season with the dissatisfaction of Damian Lillard. We need to make a big move. We need to make a big decision because we need to win a championship. It's really interesting when you talk like that because what we do as humans is we identify ourselves, Andrew and I, in that moment with an organization that the biggest contribution I've ever paid to it is bought a ticket and some nachos, hung out in the stands, screamed my head off at game four, quadruple overtime, and felt like I contributed. And it felt great and fantastic, and awesome, and excellent, because I felt a part of something bigger than myself. 
Now, you may not be a sports fan, but you may be engaged in politics or school boards, or you may be involved in other kinds of uh, boards throughout the community on nonprofits. And we have this deep sense, this deep longing inside of each of every one of us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. It's what Dallas Willard classifies really as this human project that God created. And he said, come and participate in what I'm doing. Go and create and make and cultivate. And so deep inside, of us, we desperately long to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And as humans, you're driven by something, created to be a part of something big. But tragically, tragically, a lot of people who live with this purpose don't really make much of a difference. And here's why. They've not tied really these purposes to what the kingdom of God is all about. So they may do some good here and do some good there, but they're little kings and they're little kingdoms trying to accomplish their wills, and they continue to feel bummed out, left out, missing something. And this text describes a man just like that in this situation. This man is qualified. This man He actually would have been on the cover of GQ, unlike the fake one Michael made for me that you maybe saw floating around social media this last week. Uh, The good news is, is I am now the second worst dressed pastor in Redmond, not the first, thanks to Michael. So as you guys remember, we've had some fun with that whole comment. Here Here is the reality. We see this young man who has all of these qualifications, outstanding citizen, and he comes to Jesus And he says, I'm I'm missing something I'm lacking. Now, it's very intriguing what Jesus does here. Say, for example, um, as a follower of Jesus, I I get on an airplane. And when I get on an airplane, I typically bring my Bible with me because I've got like four hours of nothing else to do. And I open up my Bible and say I'm just sitting there and reading the scriptures and this person taps on my shoulder next to me. And they say, "Uh, excuse me, I see you're reading your Bible. Can you tell me how to have eternal life? Oh, yes. Excellent. All right. Where should we start? Romans, right? Romans. We're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And we begin to progress. But the grace of God, this gift that is given to us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I would walk them through Romans Road. And I would take them down, John 3.16, and say, For God so loved the world, you being a part of this world, that he gave his only son. That if you would believe in him, you would not perish, but have everlasting life. And I would be thrilled to have the opportunity for some seeker to come to me. Not me awkwardly being like, reading my Bible like this, so they might see the highlighted words on the pages. Okay? I've never done that. So, so... So to have this opportunity, and I'd have it so well outlined. But here's an opportunity, and that's not what Jesus does. And this week, it infuriated me. It frustrated me. Because Jesus did not take the typical route in telling this man what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. He goes a completely different road. Where is the sinner's prayer? (laughs) We might create some more space next week after I talk about this. Where, where, where did he say, repent? 
Where are these words that Jesus, that we are so ingrained to share in some kind of gospel presentation? Why doesn't Jesus go there? And I'm a little frustrated because it's not just this pat laid out response that he has for this man. And the answer to that is he didn't, but he did. He didn't, but he did. Jesus is going to pinpoint this man's greatest need. He's going to expose it and let him sit in it and dwell on it for him to be aware of it. And what we see here in this text is this continued summary from what we talked about last week. What is the kind of life that looks like God is in charge? What does that actually look like? And if you were with us last week, we looked at the painful topic of forgiveness And the painful topic of forgiveness is not just because somebody wronged you, but it's because you yourself end up paying it down in the process of forgiving somebody. You absorb it like Jesus did on the cross. That's what it looks like to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus, acknowledging the hurt and the pain and crying out and looking to him. But then you yourself taking that on as you pay it down and forgive somebody and let something go. That's the kind of questions that Jesus is now answering in this text. And it's incredibly uncomfortable for us because he's laying out what it looks like to be my disciple. He wants every corner of your heart. No place is safe. Not your wealth, not your family, your sexuality, nothing. Generosity, this is all on the table for Jesus throughout this discourse that he's talking with and teaching and telling his disciples about. And so just some background on what's going on. This man comes to Jesus and he's an outstanding person. He checks the boxes of what it means to be religious. He went to youth group and synagogue and sang the songs and can quote the verses Not only that, but this man happens to be very influential in his community. He's a man of great wealth and great means, probably a man of power and influence as well. And when he comes to Jesus, he comes in two ways. He has great moral wealth. I follow the commands. I obey the Torah. Jesus lists those five or six outward actions that were to live towards other people. And he goes, done, I do that, I obey that. He's also got this financial wealth. And these can be two devastating, two devastating realities on somebody's resume when they come to Jesus. Uh, What do I mean by that? When we look at him, we think, man, if this guy came into our church, like, Let's sign him up. Get the servant leader agreement. He's going to be influential. She's going to be fantastic. They're going to be generous. And not only that, this person comes and says, I understand that I have some deficiencies and some problems. This is the kind of person I can mold and work with. I want to be involved. I want to serve. But Jesus ultimately sends this man packing what gives in this passage. Why does this happen? What is Jesus trying to expose? Well, very, very intriguing this morning. This is the only text I can find in the New Testament where you're going to read the words, life, eternal life, saved, that very nuanced Christian word, means simply being rescued from destruction. You're also going to see kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. 
Now, what's intriguing about these terms is they have a now and not yet idea that we need to comprehend behind them. As we've been teaching kingdom, talking about Matthew's gospel and what Jesus came to do, we understand that because of Jesus, we live in the now which is Jesus has come, Jesus has resurrected, Jesus is restoring in us through the Holy Spirit. He is rebuilding, he's regenerated, he's made new. And what is essentially taking place is we're reaching into what will be fully fulfilled in the future and we're bringing that kind of living into the present. So Jesus' kind of people are practicing and participating in what will ultimately fully come when he sits on the throne and reign in the renewed heaven and earth. That's what we are doing as followers of Jesus. That's what we're teaching and trying to train and build us up in. It's not that we're trying to do these things in order to be followers of Jesus, but he's equipping us with the Holy Spirit to live like the kind of people that are going to be in the age to come. Is that that clear now? That's what we want. That's what we desire. And he looks at this man. And this man is checking the boxes and he's doing such a great job. And in Mark, his gospel, uh, right around chapter nine, it says he looks at this man and he uses this word look and he sees him. He gazes upon him and it says, and he loves him. His heart's breaking for him because he sees there is something keeping you from God's kingdom. There's something preventing you from fully giving your life over to who I am. When we talk about this idea of the age to come, the word there being used for eternal life is, and I'm going to butcher this, is Zoe Eonois, and it means eternal life. And this little bit of commentary comes from Michael Green, a commentary set that I really like, and this is what Green says. The primary meaning of this phrase, eternal life, right? I know we all have something in our heads right now. I know what eternal life is. This is what Green says. is not quantity, but quality of life. It is not so much that life goes on and on as a new quality of life, life released from materialism and selfishness to share the loving and self-giving life of God. John's gospel puts it so clearly. This is eternal life, that you may know the only God and Jesus Christ whom, he's talking about the Father, you have sent. This man comes and he has eternity on his mind, but there's also this present aspect of I want to be filled. I want to actually live life, the kind of life that is in fullness, the kind of life that is just spilling over in Jesus' kind of living. How do I obtain that? Not only here and now, but there is that aspect of eternality on his mind, on his thought, in the regeneration, in the age to come. How can I live like this kind of person? Now go back to the plane analogy. Somebody comes to you and they're just, they're just trapped in this you know, metal box hurling at 500 miles an hour across the sky. And they say, how, how can I have eternal life? How many of us, how many of us would say, here's the prayer? <laughs> Sheepishly, maybe. Like, yeah, I'll get you there. Why doesn't Jesus go that direction with that? Why, why doesn't he take it there? You need to understand what's going on. 
this idea that has been so just integrated into church gatherings and come forward and be in the back uh, came about largely in the early 1900s. And you've got Moody traveling along and trying to get people to make these responses. And here, here's what I want you to hear. Prayer, prayer doesn't create salvation. It accompanies it. Listen, prayer does not create salvation, but it accompanies it. It's not an incantation that you simply chant and then magically all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're just transformed, you're changed and whatnot. Okay? That's like Wicca, magic kind of stuff. Conversion isn't a matter of praying the right words. It's a matter of believing and following Jesus. How can you say that? Wait a second. Romans chapter 10, you idiot. If you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. What is that confession, that prayer? It is an acknowledgement that, yes, Jesus is Lord, but it is accompanying. It's coming alongside of the reality that Jesus is now king in your life, that you believe in him, have placed faith, active faith, moving forward with him. And what we've been so content to do is to chalk up numbers by getting hands to go up in the air and then simply sending people on their merry little ways where then they come around every so often and sing some songs and we've guaranteed them some type of eternal life and they do not know the resurrected, the risen Jesus. How do I know that? Because when you meet Jesus and truly meet Jesus, it's like seeing Aslan for the first time you are going to be utterly terrified, completely understanding of your inability to even approach such a magnificent, incredible, transcendent kind of being, right, in God. And you're also going to be so welcomed and heart-melted and it's warming because of how inviting he actually is. He's going to declare that he is king and ruler and leader of your life. And this is the kind of life that you walk in, all the while being so merciful and loving and embracing of you. That's what it looks like to meet Jesus. Really, as I said, this text is about the life that looks like God is in charge. Now, do you know what your fundamental problem is here this morning? Jesus ruthlessly attacks money. I'm not going to lie. We just can't even get around that. Being rich is materially, this whole idea of material rich, excuse me, is spiritually dangerous, no, no doubt. But there's something even worse. Something even worse that we see in this man. Uh, and there is nothing more spiritually dangerous than being morally impeccable. Here's what I mean. I have got just like the coolest four kids in the world, all right? I know you all have the coolest four kids or three kids or two kids or one kid. I'm biased, I promise, all right? They're awesome and they're sweet, they're kind, they listen, um, and they're being raised in this family that is acknowledging, talking, teaching, preaching, discussing Jesus as we had our breakfast yesterday morning and just a day of rest. And we're just talking about what we're thankful in Jesus. They're hearing a lot about Jesus. Uh, But I'm also terrified because they're just these like morally good 
kids. My, my kids are. They're just morally kind of making good decisions right now, going in the right direction right now. And it kind of came to a pass this week with me because I sent my daughter. She went outside to the car to get something, and she comes in, and she's just got this like panicked look on her face. And I'm like, Ava, what's wrong? And she goes, Daddy, our neighbor? And I'm like, if you know, the last few weeks has been really interesting in our place. We've had some stuff stolen, house broke into, all, all the rest great stuff. So my daughter is like getting serious. I'm a little nervous. She goes, Daddy, our neighbor, he's smoking. <laughs> he's smoking. <laughs> I was like, oh, what's, well, what's, what's wrong? Isn't that really bad, Daddy? Isn't that really bad? Isn't that awful? And so my daughter has created this category where she's already viewing people who are doing things a little bit different than her that may not be the best things for your health, but I'll tell you what, that McDonald's she ate that day, it wasn't a whole lot better for what she was doing to her, right? And the whole like greed thing, like can we go back next week to get the new toy, Daddy? And so, so you've got this issue going, on and what I'm terrified in my household, what I'm just fretting over is I'm raising these morally cognizant beings that approach the world in such a way that they've got this upper hand over everybody else because my daddy's a pastor and we play hide and seek in the church when nobody else is here and we're really the reason it gets messy and daddy just kind of brushes it under the rug, all right? <laughs> yeah, if it's broke, my kids probably did it. Sorry, Michael. So, so here's, here's my fear. It's not that the kids are going to grow up and be successful. I'm not terrified if they have material possessions. There should be a little bit of a caveat there. Like, hey, be wary. If you're somebody in that upper echelon, like you own a car and an iPhone, you're probably 75% of the richest people in the world. Just to make that known here right now. Here's what I'm worried about. For my kids who are growing up in the church is that they're just going to be these morally good humans and they don't have a lot of need for Jesus. And then they're going to hit a moment of crisis and Jesus is not going to be what they thought he is. Their daddy might get sick someday. They might have issues or problems personally in their own marriages. It's like, I was good, God. Where the heck are you right now? Why aren't you answering my prayers and my call? And they grew up, they grow up in a place that is just so familiar of, if you just kind of do good and walk rightly, then all of a sudden everything pans out and plays out for you. This man's morality was his identity, and Jesus knew it. And Jesus, first and foremost, ruthlessly attacks that. Oh, you're good? Well, let me tell you to go do something because of your response to me. You see, This is not some command that is generalized to every person over every generation. Jesus runs into, for example, like a Zacchaeus who was a wee little man and climbed the tree. And he ends up giving repartations to half. He gives away half of everything he has. Jesus doesn't even ask for that. Or when Jesus has other conversations with people, he's not saying, hey, come and follow me and give away all your wealth. But Jesus acknowledges the very thing that is preventing this man from making Jesus Lord of his life. He's saying, you can have my sexuality, you can have my covetousness, you can have my pride. Jesus, you can have all of those things, but over here, I'm doing pretty darn good financially. And for you to ask me to give that up, I'm absolutely unwilling. And this man walks away grieved, broken, 
We don't know his ultimate response. But what we know is he comes in contact with Jesus and Jesus says, I want you to be involved in disinvestment in what you have. I want you to give away in order to get back even more than you could ever imagine. A couple of things. This man was on the right track. Michael gave those center sets when he was teaching and he talked about the bounded set and people moving towards Jesus and people moving away from Jesus. This is a man in this moment, he's moving towards Jesus, curious, wondering, who is this Jesus? And then he hears this radical call and this radical man. He goes, I would love for you to be Lord of my life in a lot of areas, but not in this one. And he goes away grieved, disappointed. Can you ask the same question today? What do I still lack? And you have to understand the look of Jesus is not like when I walk into the bathroom for the 15th time and there's toothpaste slammed everywhere and I'm just like, what in the world? All right, come on, kids. Can't you figure it out? Can't you get it together? No, Jesus sees this man. He understands this man. He gets where he's coming from. And it says that he loves him. He's got compassion And he is so generous in his invitation of, you go do all of this. And then in the call, here's the call. He says, come and follow me. To believe Jesus is to come and follow him. Yes, he is Lord, he is Savior, and I'm going to walk after your footsteps and you are so generous when I mess up and you're so kind to remind me of your love and generosity, but I'm going to follow and believe and that is the call we see again and again and again in the scripture. It's the same gospel presented in different nuanced ways because some people have idolatry of money. Some people have idolatry of religion. People have idolatry of all sorts of other issues in their life. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what you need in your most specific way. Repent, follow me. And Jesus redefines the good life. What's the good life? I think about that a lot. How do you define the good life? And Jesus says, this, this is the good life. Keller, when he talks about this passage, says, what Jesus is doing and saying is, Christianity is not something you add. Christianity is more like an explosion that destroys everything you have to make way for something new. It's a dangerous calling. But that's the kind of calling that Jesus invites us to. And we're going to be shocked because we see it demands more of us than we ever could have imagined or thought, but it offers more than you can conceive or believe in Jesus. So, what is Jesus telling you? What is the Spirit telling you? This is in the way, and you need to lay it down. Come on, man, does God really do this? You know when God called out Abraham, and he had this promise placed on his life that she'd have a child and he kind of goes around God and circumvents him and tries to have a child in his own power in his own way with Hagar and that's a mess and a disaster and then finally they get this child Sarah and Abraham and what does God do when that child turns about 12 13 years old he says take your son your only son 
The one thing you prize more than anything. Why? Because in that day and age, that's how you're going to live on. That's going to be your influence. That's going to be your legacy. That's who you're going to pass everything down through. This is going to be whom many, many people are going to be blessed. He's got all of this playing into his mind. His son is extremely elevated because he's been desired for so long. And Jesus says, lay him down on the altar. Can you do that for me? God is saying, can you, can you do that? Your hopes, your dreams, your wishes, your desires. And in obedience, if you know the story, there would have been all sorts of questioning in his mind. Abraham follows the command, the call of God, puts him on the altar, and he raises the dagger, and all of a sudden there's a ram in the thicket, and he says, whoa, wait a minute, stop. You obeyed, you're obedient, amazing. He comes with a rich man, and it wasn't children for him. It was his finances. He says, lay it down. Lay it down. Violently kill, destroy, get rid of the thing that prevents you from knowing me, from experiencing me, from loving me. Uh, Why would we do that? We're going to finish up with this. It's kind of this monster in our hearts. And it's interesting because in our culture, it's really painted as a good or neutral thing, whether it's money, family, or children. And when I say a monster, there's this thing that determines how you're going to go about in your life, what you live for, what directs you, what you think about when your feet hit the floor in the morning. And Jesus is calling us in surrendering those dreams to him. And he says, I want you to have nothing else above me. I want you to have no other priority. I want to be supreme. I want to be ultimate in your life. I want you to relinquish that control. And people who, maybe you don't have those things, but you want those things, you live in this deep anxiety of trying to get those things. And Jesus is saying, lay down those dreams because it's not success, it's not money, it's not sex, it's not influence or work. And those things are neutral. They can be very, very good in their right context, but I need to be first in your life. And he's saying, lay that down because nothing compares to my love, my forgiveness, my generosity. Nothing compares to what I can give you. And when we live in that way, money is no longer sacred. It's not. I love my kids, but they're no longer sacred. They're no longer the thing that if something happens to them, my whole life unravels and I've got nothing left to live for. Do you you understand this? When Jesus is the ultimate, I'm not saying it's pleasant when you walk through pain and suffering and tragedy, but all of a sudden your ultimate is in God. And so when those lows come, you're no longer bent and angry and shaking the fist in such a way where it's, how dare you? But it's, Lord, how come? I'm broken. I need guidance. I need your love. I need your mercy. But what we've done is we've got God here and we've got the stuff here. And when this gets messed with, we hit lows. And it brings destruction. You know, in like 2007, 8, 9, when especially Central Oregon just got hit hard with the housing market, you begin to see people losing their homes. And these were status symbols. They were ultimates. 
And because they couldn't let go of these things, you begin to see, I'm, I'm telling you truth here, marriages falling apart because this is what we put our identity and our stock in. If you want to know us, come check out our Bend River home where we just watch the kayakers go by. That's us. That's who we are. And when it's taken, it began to unravel and bring more destruction and problems in people's lives because there was no category on how to loosely hold all the things that we've been given. This is my challenge to you, and I'm done. This is my challenge. Can you come to Jesus this morning in an honest way and say, what do I lack? There is nothing you can add morally or good behavior to be more loved and more accepted than you are right now. But there can be an acknowledgement right now of, I've just put so much stock in being a good father a good mother, a good friend, a good business person, building this great environment. And if that's stripped from me, I'll lose who I am. And Jesus is saying, Jesus is calling, and he's saying, let me tell you what you lack. I, I don't know what it is for you out there, but I'm gonna push you to do something. I'm not gonna make you pray with each other this week, don't worry. <laughs> I'm gonna push you to do something. One of the things that we talk about at our church, as well as in our staff meetings, is listening prayer. Where we're just going to take a couple of minutes, calm our hearts, and ask God that question that the rich young ruler asked. What do I lack? What would you have me ruthlessly kill, God? What would you go after in my life right now that I could lay down at your feet and it's yours? He may speak, he may not speak. He may speak, and you may have to tell your neighbor, children, friend, this is what God is revealing and showing to me. But I'd be surprised if there wasn't a handful of us in here who are tightly holding something. And Jesus is saying, let it go. Come and follow me. If you're not a Christian and you're saying, how can I have eternal life? The message is the same. The path you are on is destruction. It is turn, follow him. And it may not even look like destruction. This man's like, I'm doing it, Jesus. I'm morally great. How could you mean this? And he's saying, no, no, no. If you continue down this path, you're going to be bankrupt ultimately. Follow me believe in me. I'm going to pray, and then, except for a handful of maybe babies in here, we're just going to be quiet, and the babies are, it's fine, it's great. We're just going to be quiet, and if you'd participate in this, great. If not, I, I get it. You don't have to. We're going to say, Lord, what do you want? So let me pray. Lord, in this moment right now, we acknowledge life is busy and we're bad at slowing down. I know there's a list today of things I have to do that everybody in this church has to do. I get that. We want to quiet our hearts. And we just want to ask what the Spirit might say to us corporately or individually. What do we need to lay down? Let's do that.